Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, just a great treat to be with you this morning. I see our crowd is a little sparse this morning. Someone must have said I was preaching, so <laughs> thank you for ever let that out of the bag. I appreciate that. Now, I know a few people are sick, some are traveling, but it's great to be with you here, uh, be with you here nonetheless. Uh, and, you know, for me, it's always a humbling, humbling thing to stand in this pulpit before you. Um, I believe that we have pro- probably one of the greatest expositors, you know, uh, best expositors in uh, the country, probably, preaching on a regular basis. So it's always humbling from that perspective. But it's really humbling because I love this church. I love you guys. And it's just a, it's an overwhelming thing to be able to, to, preach the word, to have this opportunity and to have this time to uh, proclaim God's truth. So I'm glad to be here. And um, again, it's my great privilege and joy to be able to minister to you this morning. And let me just say at the outset that my message today is uh, going to be more of a topical study and not the usual exposition that focuses on a single text. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture, and in some cases, we're going to move through them very quickly, so just keep that in mind. Let me also warn you that my message today, it deals with an issue that is highly controversial. It may be hard to hear, and for some, it may even be offensive, For holding the views that I hold, and and by the way, these are not my views alone. They are the views of this church. They are the uh, the views of the Reformed Church in general. And as I hope to demonstrate, these are the views that are set forth in God's Word. But for having and sharing these views, other professing believers and even pastors have called me everything from misguided to a messenger and child of Satan. So keep that in mind. By the way, these are similar names that have been given to many men I look up to, including our own pastor, so at least I know I'm in good company. When I was asked to fill the pulpit this morning, I was planning to go in a totally different direction. Uh, But then this past Tuesday happened. Sometime shortly before 12.30 a.m., The alarm on my phone went off, and I saw that it was a tornado warning. I quickly, well, at least quickly for me, I ran upstairs uh, to wake up my son so he could come uh, come downstairs, and I turned on the TV to see what was happening and exactly where it was happening. As you all know, if you've lived in this area for a while, for various reasons, we get a lot of tornado warnings that aren't always tornadoes, so... um, you know, we kind of take those warnings with a grain of salt a lot of times. But in this case, as we all know, it was the real deal. I turned on the TV just as the tornado was entering the Germantown area uh, north of Nashville. And I watched the coverage as it went into East Nashville and then Donaldson, Hermitage, Mount Juliet, and Lebanon. As I watched, I sent out a few checks, a few texts to check on folks and Things seemed to die down for a while after the storms left the Lebanon area. It was about this time that the 
news crews had made their way to Germantown in East Nashville, and they began showing some of the devastation that the storm had left behind. As I watched the coverage of, of the collapse of mangled buildings, I knew that, that there were likely going to be people who were hurt and possibly even killed. And sure enough, we began hearing reports of, of casualties from uh, uh, East Nashville and Mount Juliet. And then the tornado picked up steam again as it headed into Cookville, where it became an even more powerful EF4 uh, storm with, I believe, 175 mile per hour winds. Here it did its greatest damage in terms of loss of life. And by the time it was finished, it had claimed the lives of 25 people from Nashville to Cookville, including five children, by the way. On top of that, many more were injured. Many had their homes, businesses, and even churches destroyed. And with the storm being so close to home, I know that some of us were directly affected, and many of us have personal connections with some of those whose lives were devastated. I know that two of the people who died in this tornado were, I didn't know them, but they were lifelong friends of my wife's parents. Well, after seeing what happened in the tornado, the thought hit me that this might be a good time to discuss this topic the topic I've chosen this morning. But then I thought, no, you know, I've already began preparing my, uh, for my original topic and it's an issue I've been wanting to speak about for a while. So I continued on. But then this past Friday, I read something in the news that changed my mind. One of our state representatives was giving an interview about the post-tornado recovery efforts. And he said, quote, God was not in this tornado but he has been in our response. Now, I will come back to that statement in just a minute. But let me point out that when tragedies like this strike, when tragedies like this tornado occur, the inevitable question always arises, where was God in all of this? Where was God in all of this? Often this question is really asked with a tone of indignation. What they really mean to say is, how could God let this happen? Why did God let this happen? And let me just preface what I'm going to be talking about this morning. When these things occur, we want to show an extra amount of grace when someone is experiencing the pain of loss, a tragedy like this can bring, whether it's this tornado or whatever it may be. Our Lord was empathetic toward hurting people, and we certainly want to be as well. That said... We must all deal with the reality that this tornado and the devastation that it left behind, like all other calamities, is ultimately tied to the fall and its consequences for God's creation. It's a product of the curse that was brought about because of sin. For this reason, we may rightly put it in the category of evil. Even though we might not think of calamities Uh, like this in the same sense as moral evil, all calamities are either a direct or indirect result of moral evil. Everyone understand that? Moreover, because we are all sinners, we cannot rightly charge God or anyone else when these evils devastate our lives. 
I'm reminded here of what Jesus said in Luke 13, beginning in verse 4, regarding the tower that collapsed and killed 18 people in uh, Siloam. Do you remember that story? His audience uh, thought of evil as, you know, only happening to bad people. So the tower failed and killed those 18 people. Well, it must have been because they were especially wicked, right? That's what the people thought. But Jesus answered and he said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus' comments were meant to challenge the, the moral arrogance of that day and remind them of the coming judgment. Had they really understood their own sin, uh, the ensuing question wouldn't have been, why did the tower fall on those other 18 people? The better question would have been, why did the tower not fall on me? And so Jesus tells them very directly, if you do not repent, you too will perish. Now, as I thought about this verse, it, the reality hit me of how so many folks today ignore the warnings of God's coming judgment. There are many people, people I know, people I, I love dearly, uh, many who claim to be Christian, and yet they worry more about the coronavirus than they do God's judgment. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that we not take proper precautions uh, uh, to avoid getting sick, but what if people were as concerned about God's judgment as they were about the coronavirus? Think about that. Maybe this is a little out of context, but I think Jesus' comments from Matthew 10, 28 are fitting to the situation when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But back to our question, where was God in all of this? As I said, this tornado, like all evil, is ultimately a product of God's curse on creation because of sin. And while that view may be controversial in some circles, I think most Christians, at least those of us who would rightly approach the Scriptures from a moral, more literal perspective, we would all agree. But what about our fine state representative's comments, God was not in this tornado? Is that true? Is that true? If you're answering the question, where was God in this tragedy? Can we rightly proclaim that God had absolutely no involvement in bringing it about? Many well-being Christians whose aim is to defend the integrity of God, by the way, they would answer that question with an emphatic, of course God had nothing to do with this tragedy. I even read a Christian website that said, quote, God is not in the business of causing natural disasters and calamities. But to whoever is responsible for this website, to those well-meaning Christians, and to our fine state representative, I would refer you to Psalm 148.8, where the psalmist proclaims that fire and hail, snow and mist, and yes, stormy wind fulfill his word. Or as one translation puts it, do his bidding. 
There's a belief in most of Christendom that God is somehow removed from the evils that take place in our world. Many Christians see God as a a passive agent who only allows evil to occur. But saints, as we see in just this one verse, this is in direct contradiction to God's word. It simply is not true. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. We worship a God who is sovereign over all things, including evil. Whether we're talking about calamities such as this week's, uh, past week's tornado or the, the moral evil of sin, nothing happens merely by chance. God ordains all things that come to pass, even evil for our good and for his glory. Now, if you've never heard that statement before, I know you're thinking, wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. When I make a bold statement like God ordains evil, and I mention it in the context of a horrific tragedy like this past week's storm, I know that that's not an easy thing to hear. I know that. And for some, it might not be an easy thing to believe. It might be offensive. How could God have ordained something that he knew would cause so much pain and suffering? But consider this, as tragic as the events surrounding this storm were, they pale in comparison to the world's most egregious tragedy of all time. And I'm talking, of course, about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. The murder of our Lord was the only event in history in which a sinless and thus truly innocent person suffered undeservedly. The only one. As I mentioned earlier, all human human suffering is ultimately a product of sin. We are all guilty of sin and thus deserving of its consequences. But Jesus never once transgressed, not once. He lived his earthly life in spotless obedience from beginning to end giving himself totally to the will of God. Yet our Lord was delivered up by the hands of wicked men and suffered the undignified and cruel death of a common criminal. This was the most atrocious act of evil ever carried out in all of history. Now, why am I mentioning this? Well, it's significant to our discussion because the Bible tells us that the events surrounding the murder of our Uh, of our Lord Jesus were predestined. Predestined by God. We find the best example of this, I believe, in the second and fourth chapters of Acts. First, in Acts 2, in the wake of the, the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, Peter delivers a timely sermon attributing the miracles that had just taken place to the fulfillment of prophecy. Peter goes on to say, beginning in Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to the words of Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
So again, what is this text saying? Peter tells us here that our Lord was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God. The phrase delivered over. It's a reference to Jesus having been betrayed and brought to his captors by Judas Iscariot. Now, no person will question the fact that Judas' actions were evil. In fact, one may argue that Judas is the key villain in Jesus' death. And yet his actions are amongst the most detestable in the whole narrative of the events surrounding the crucifixion. And yet Peter... According to Peter, Judas acted according to the predetermined plan of God. The expression predetermined plan of God refers to a plan that has been determined and clearly defined. In other words, God decreed the detailed means by which our Lord would be delivered over to his captors. This truth is further clarified by the fact that Judas's actions are prophesied in the Old Testament, uh, specifically through the shadowy experiences of David as recorded in Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend, says David, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, the close friend of whom David speaks is most likely Ahithophel, who we know from reading 2 Samuel 17, conspired against him with Absalom. Our Lord Jesus, however, in John 13, 18, applies this verse to Judas' betrayal, saying, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, as he speaks to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, note the ultimate cause that our Lord gives for Judas' betrayal, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Peter makes a similar comment concerning Jesus's, uh, Judas' betrayal in Acts uh, 1, verse 16. He says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, the word had here, it carries the idea of necessity. It expresses in this text divine necessity. In other words, in Judas's betrayal of Jesus, an evil act of the worst kind, we see that God is not merely looking forward and, and working his purpose through some random act of man. On the contrary, Judas, though he acted willfully, in accordance with his own evil heart, he also acted in accordance to God's predetermined plan. And because these actions were predetermined, being set forth in the word of God, it was necessary that they come to pass. Well, later in Acts 4, and, and uh, thank you, Mike, for reading that for us, after appearing before the Sanhedrin and being released, Peter and John returned to their Christian brethren to give a report of what uh, the Jewish leaders had said to them. Upon hearing the report, beginning in verse 24, the church lifts up its voice and it says these words, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all, and all 
who by the Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and people devalue futile things? The kings of the earth took stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord Jesus and his Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, again, just a little context here. In this passage, the church makes reference uh, to the first two verses of Psalm chapter 2. And it applies this text to the evils committed against Jesus in his trial and subsequent uh, execution. They mention that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews... In committing these evil acts, they do the things that God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. Though these men acted with malicious intent, they actually carried out the predestined will of God. Now, this seems plain enough. But the objector may say that it was Jesus' suffering and death that was predestined, not necessarily the the evil actions themselves. In other words, God ordains the ends, but not the means. I've heard that many times. But that's not what these verses say. No, they refer to the specific actions of the simple men who murdered our Lord, which is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Do you see that? In other words, the prophecy set forth in the first two verses of Psalm 2 was carried out by the evil action of these men just as God predestined. That's what the text is saying. God reveals his predestined plan through prophecy and fulfills it through the actions of Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews. And this is why Isaiah can rightly proclaim in Isaiah 53.10 that the Lord was pleased to crush him. And as Peter later affirms in Acts 3.18, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now, in order to shed a little more light on this issue, I think it may be helpful to look briefly at the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, which so vividly foreshadows the events surrounding our Lord's crucifixion, by the way. You may recall that Joseph suffered greatly at the hands of his brothers, who out of jealousy and hatred plotted to kill him. You guys know the story. One day they were out feeding the flock and they saw their opportunity. So they rose up against him. They removed the coat that his father Jacob had had made for him and they threw him into a pit. As they were contemplating what to do next, they saw a group of traders headed to Egypt. And Joseph's brother Judah, he suggested, well, instead of of killing him, let's just sell him into slavery. And so they did that for 20 pieces of silver. Well, as you all know, their actions started a series of events which eventually led Joseph to becoming a ruler in Egypt. And because Joseph was in this place of prominence, he was able to save his family from the famine 
that decimated the land years after his brother's egregious act of evil. And and just one of the most beautiful texts in Scripture, I believe, uh, Genesis 50, we see the climax of the story as Joseph's brothers bow before him. By the way, as he had dreamed, and that was one of the reasons they hated him so much. You guys remember that. They bow before him and they plead for forgiveness. And in an act of gracious mercy, Joseph responds, beginning in verse 19, saying, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The word meant is used in this passage. It refers to the devising of a plan. In other words, Joseph acknowledges that the evil committed against him was intentional on the part of his brothers who devised a plan with evil intent. But he also acknowledges that the evil committed against him was ordained by God who devised a plan for the good of Joseph and his family. In our text from the second and fourth chapters of Acts, we see the same thing happening with Jesus' crucifixion. Man devises and executes a wicked plan to destroy Jesus. However, in doing so, he unwittingly carries out the predetermined plan of God, who, as Ephesians 1 tells us, works all things after the counsel of his will. So in review... Let us consider the evidence here. Our Lord's suffering was uh, predetermined and prophesied in the Old Testament, as was its means. The acts of those who persecuted our Lord are said to be necessary for the fulfillment of of these prophecies. And in their fulfillment, God presents himself as the active agent. In addition, we have a clear Old Testament type And Joseph's suffering, which Scripture tells us is a devised plan on the part of God. And likewise, we have Scripture from the New Testament, which tells us that the actions of our Lord's betrayer and persecutors were in accordance to God's predetermined plan. Saints, can there be any doubt as to the fact, or as to the fact that evil falls within the Uh, framework of God's ordained will. Now, I use the evil committed against our Lord to demonstrate that if God ordained this most horrendous act of evil, he is capable of ordaining evil of, of all sorts. But just in case you think this is a special case or atypical of how God operates, Let me quickly just mention a few more examples. First, from the first and second chapters of Job, we know that Satan, like all angels, presents himself before God to receive commands. Now, he obviously does this uh, with a different intent, but he still cannot do anything unless God wills it to be. And as you may recall, it is God who calls Job to Satan's attention. And although it is Satan that afflicts Job... Job recognizes that his trials ultimately come from God, and so he declares in Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. We read in 2 Samuel 16 of the 
of the evil act of incest by Absalom. And yet in reference to this event, God declares in 2 Samuel 12, 12, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And what about those many examples of our Lord executing judgment? It is often at the hands of evil people committing evil acts against God's people. Uh, for this reason, in Jeremiah 25, 9, God declares Nebuchadnezzar to be his servant. In Isaiah 10, 5, Assyria he calls the rod of my anger, who wields the staff of my fury. Of course, we could go on and on. Saints, the biblical evidence here is it's, it's overwhelming. The idea that God does not ordain evil, that somehow evil falls outside of our Lord's providential will, that is a view that is informed by tradition. It's a view that is informed by a shallow presupposition of who people think God should be. As we see here, it's obviously not a view that is informed by Scripture. Now again, I know these are difficult truths. I know they are. But this is what the Bible teaches. Well, in my many discussions I have had on this issue with other professing believers and and particularly with those who disagree, one passage always comes up in the objection to the Reformed position. It's James 1.13 and 14. And probably many of you were thinking of this verse when I was speaking this morning. James 1, 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, the argument the objector is making is simple. If God does not tempt men with evil, which this verse clearly states, then logically he cannot be said to ordain evil. That's the argument. Now, it's important to point out here that the objection being made here is not an exegetical argument. It's a logical argument. You'll see that. The objector is essentially saying that the verses in James contradict my interpretation of those texts we just uh, looked at and cited. Therefore, those texts cannot say what they mean to be say, or seem to be saying. Well, first, let me say that I wholeheartedly agree with what James is telling us in these verses. We were just singing about it. We know that God is all holy. We know that evil runs contrary to his character. We know that. The temptation we feel to sin comes from our fallenness, not from God. Think about it. When you sin, do you feel that God is twisting your arm? Did God, does he twist your arm to cause you to sin? Not me. I do it freely. It comes from the evil inside of me. If God is telling us anything... He's not telling us to give in and do it. He's telling us, don't do it. Whether through word or conscience, God is saying, uh, avoid evil at all costs. Flee from it. Run from it. I think most everyone here would agree. 
But why does this have to mean that those other texts, which clearly provide examples of God providentially acting within the evil actions of men, are any less true? Do, does James 1, 13, and 14 cancel out all these other passages? Of course not. To say that God is sovereign over evil or that he ordains evil is not the same as saying he is tempting us to commit evil. Now, I will concede that I don't fully understand how all this fits together. But I don't have to. When God says, I do not tempt men to sin, I take him at his word. But when he says, I bring the storm that rips your home from its foundation, or when he says, I ordain the evil that brought the northern armies to plunder your land and to kill your people, or when he says, I predestine the actions of those evil men who crucified our Savior, I still take him at his word. It's a vain and faithless thing to attempt to rationalize and resolve the many paradoxes of the Bible. And it is certainly to do so without engaging in speculation or, or without doing some exegetical cartwheels to make certain verses mean what we want them to mean. Apart from divine revelation, we do not have the needed insight to understand the mysteries of God. And I know of no scripture that explains the methods employed by God in ordination. So how can we rightly say that ordination makes God the author of sin? We can't. Well, it seems to be at odds from our perspective, God is perfectly capable of working it out. I like what John Calvin writes. Just a great quote here. He says, When we do not grasp how God wills to take place what he forbids to be done, let us recall our mental incapacity and at the same time consider that the light in which God dwells is not without reason called unapproachable. And he references 1 Timothy uh, 6.16. Because it is overspread with darkness. Calvin goes on to say, Let those for whom this seems harsh consider for a little while how bearable how bearable their squeamishness is in refusing a thing attested by clear scriptural proofs because it exceeds their mental capacity. For our wisdom ought to be nothing else than to embrace with humble teachableness whatever is taught in sacred scripture. Amen. Well, from this, a related objection uh, arises. How can God condemn men for their evil actions if he has ordained the very actions for which he holds them accountable? Well, in answering this objection, let me first again point out James 1.14, which says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Just as God's ordination of evil does not necessitate that he be the tempter, neither does it change the fact that Men, when they sin, act in accordance with their own sinful lusts. We've already said that. God does not push man into something he would otherwise not do. Man chooses evil for himself. Therefore, God is perfectly just in punishing the guilty, right? But there's an additional point to consider when addressing this objection. And and listen closely to this. 
It is well within the right of God to both ordain evil and hold men accountable. Many scoff at this notion. But the Apostle Paul makes this very point in Romans 9. And notice what he says beginning in verse 18. And this is referring to God's raising up of Pharaoh. Paul writes, He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You all remember Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a hard man. And and when uh, Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not concede. But as the plagues began to get more severe, Pharaoh's ready to, okay, get them out of here. Then what happens? God hardens his heart. And that's what Paul is saying here. God hardens whom he desires. Then next in verse 19, anticipating the objection that will naturally be raised, Paul writes, why does he, why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Sounds like they understood God's sovereignty and providence back then, huh? In other words, the imaginary objector asks, if we are carrying out the decreed will of God, how can God hold us accountable? And to this, Paul responds, beginning in verse 20, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the motor, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, and another for common use. Now we see this, something very similar in Job 38. When Job, if you're familiar with the story, when he questions God about the evil that devastated his life, in Job 38, uh, in verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, and then verse 4 and 5, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. In other words, God is saying to Job, and God is saying to the imaginary objector in Romans 9, and to anyone else who questions his providence and judgments, he's saying, I am the creator, not you. I am the judge, not you. I am God, not you. Well, there's so much more we could say. But I want to make sure I have time to speak briefly to the issue of why. Often when we are talking about some of these more difficult truths, people will ask, what's the point? Why bring up something so controversial? The issue of God's operation in evil came up recently in a discussion uh, with a young Christian acquaintance. By the way, he brought the subject up, not me. But I think he was a little surprised to hear my views. And he said to me, listen to this, quote, who is going to believe in a God like that? Who is going to believe in a God like that? This young man smart. He's involved in the church, but he's not prepared to to hear my viewpoint. He cannot speak to those passages that uh, some of which we just looked at. Spurgeon has a great quote that I 
I think speaks to this issue very well. He says, everything in this age is shallow. Deep sea fishing is almost an extinct business so far as men's souls are concerned. Of course, this quote was made from England in 1882. (laughs) Think about that. I can only imagine what he might say if he saw the church in America today. In many ways, shallowness seems like the least of our problems, doesn't it? But the quote is fitting nonetheless. A culture that is used to a smiley-faced Jesus is usually not prepared to hear or to talk about some of the deeper or more difficult truths of Scripture. And as my associate's quote suggests, our church culture has turned Jesus into a commodity. Many people feel that they need to package Jesus into a God that sells. And frankly, there aren't many people who are willing to buy into the full, unedited version we see in Scripture. Yeah, I'll have the cliff notes, thank you very much, minus, minus all the stuff about sovereignty or anything else that might challenge uh, my presuppositions about uh, who I think God should be. That's kind of the attitude that we see in our culture. You know, it's interesting, in the same, catechi- uh, the same catechism that one particular Reformed denomination now uses to train its pastor, it was once used to train children. Think about that. Of course, now we train our children by having them color a picture of Noah's Ark, right? <laughs> but there was a time in the Reformed church when pastors went deep. Were not as, uh, they were not afraid to speak about hard things. And praise God, there are still a few today who are faithful in this regard. But I say all this to make the point that we talk about these things because God reveals them in Scripture. We talk about them because they're in God's Word. God is revealing Himself to us, right? Well, along those same lines, we know that evil is not without purpose. A lot of times we think of evil in terms of being an asterisk to God's plans. Plan A did not work out, so God came up with a plan B. But obviously, I do not believe that at all. By the very nature of his omnipotence and omniscience, we know that evil was always part of God's plan. The name of his elect were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before when? Before the foundation of the world, right? Not after plan A fell through. To be sure, there's still a great deal of mystery here as far as how it all went down. But clearly, God had a plan for evil from the beginning. In the case of those ordained evils committed against our Lord in his, uh, in his crucifixion, they were necessary to save us and ultimately restore fellowship between God and his creation. For this reason, when we see the cross... We are, as Joseph was in, in viewing his own suffering, we recognize the evil, yet we see the bigger picture in God's purposes for our good. And we rejoice and we praise our Lord. And it's not merely the good of salvation that stands out in the cross. It's the attributes of God himself. Uh, I love this quote from John Stott. 
He says, the achievement of Christ's cross must be seen in terms of revelation as well as salvation. For through what God did there for the world, he was also speaking to the world. Just as human beings disclose their character and their actions, so God has showed himself to us in the death of Christ. The evil of the cross is a revelatory event through uh, which God puts himself in his glory on display. We see particularly those wonderful traits of God that are inseparable from our salvation, such as his love for sinners, his mercy and grace. We also see God's righteousness in justly condemning and punishing sin. Yes, God is glorified in his justice. Clearly God uses evil and especially the evil of the cross as a necessary means by which he reveals himself in a fuller light, and in it his glory shines forth. Now I say all that just to make this point. The evil of the cross and consequently the presence of evil itself, it's no accident. Rather, it is the ordained means by which God reveals certain aspects of his character which would otherwise go unseen, thus robbing him of due glory and praise and lessening the joy of believers who would uh, no longer experience the goodness and blessings in these qualities of God. This quote by Jonathan Edwards, I think, communicates these truths more articulately than I ever could. He says, quote, If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness and hatred of sin when showing any preference in his providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. How much happiness soever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired. So evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world, because the creature's happiness uh, consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of him be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionately, proportionably imperfect. Well, I'm going to end here. And, but just so there's no confusion, I'm not suggesting that we rejoice in evil or that we commit evil in order to allow God's glorious attributes to shine forth more brightly, uh, giving us even more cause to rejoice. Such a notion would not only be a perverted eisegesis of what I've been saying, but it would be akin to the absurdity that Paul mentioned in uh, Romans 6.1, that should we sin so that uh, God's grace may abound. I'm not saying that. What I do propose, however, is first of all that Christians, we should take comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over evil. Does that not give you comfort? Does that not give you comfort? Whether we are talking about the evil of the storm or the evil of the cross, all these things are carried out in accordance with his predetermined will to be used for his purposes. You know, praise God that the devil doesn't have free reign, right? Furthermore, 
The purposes for which God uses evil are righteous, therefore the good of his children. Let us therefore rejoice, not in evil itself, but in the grace and the mercy and the love and all of those glorious attributes of God that shine forth in the misty people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by these truths and we just thank you for them. We thank you for the hope we have as believers that, that what ev- whatever evil may transpire in our lives, whatever evil we may encounter, we know that you are sovereign, that, that you are the God of, of, of the storm, that you are the God of, of, of uh, all things, Lord, that, that might seemingly pull us off of our track. May we rejoice in that truth. May we find comfort in that truth, knowing that you are in control. And Father, um, for those who struggle with these truths, and, and um, I just pray for clarity. I pray that you would um, um, even be with uh, people like me, that I would um, uh, be able to speak to these things in a way that is uh, clear, that is gracious, and that I would be teachable. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.